Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by my co-host Matt Fortuna. We're no longer atop Ohio Stadium after midnight, trying to make sense of Notre Dame's 21-10 opening week loss to Ohio State. Uh, to help us further in that processing, we uh, Mike Golick Jr. on the show today. A lot of Harry Heastan offensive line talk, a little bit of Marcus Freeman, Tommy Reese talk as well. Um, definitely one of those moments I wish that we had a YouTube uh streaming with the podcast so everyone could sort of see Mike's face as I uh, talk, to, so, talk to him about some of the fan perception of Tommy Reese. But alas, perhaps that's a, a future podcast. Matt, um, I, I guess, what are we, 72 hours removed from Ohio State at this point? I don't know if you feel much differently about the game or... 96, feel much, I 96, think. <laughs> feel much differently after talking to uh, Golik today, but... Um, yeah, I don't know if you, you have any uh, new takeaways or or new thoughts or hot takes from uh, Saturday. I, I did find it interesting. Um, you know, Notre Dame had 253 total yards of offense in that game. Um, obviously, not enough to beat a, an opponent in the caliber of Ohio State. However, um, the last last time they had less than that, will, I think, will shock people. Um, it was in a 29 point win. Last September against Wisconsin, Notre Dame had just 242 yards of total offense. We all remember that as the game where Brian Kelly broke the Notre Dame coaching wins record um, for a career. And with Notre Dame, I believe, was trailing with as late as 10 minutes left in that game. So that game yeah, never really made sense in quarter. real time. It never made sense in real time. It makes even less sense now. Um, the lowest Notre Dame output offensively in a loss um, before uh, – before last night, before Saturday was uh, Michigan 2019. They had 180, which that one, anyone who remembers that game, that probably won't be all that surprising. But I, I just that, that that Wisconsin game to me, just just going through my notes trying to figure out when Notre Dame performed this way offensively, statistically was a uh, was pretty interesting. Um, also, on the positive side, if you're Notre Dame, 21 points was the lowest total Ohio State has scored in a game with Ryan Day as head coach, and the lowest they scored in a game at all. Um, since I believe the 2018 Purdue game, um, when they put up just 20, uh, Ryan Day was the OC for that game and what ended up being Urban Myers last year. There, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I think, context that you got to apply to the Ohio State performance in terms of who was available for Notre Dame, um, the complimentary game plan, which we talked a little bit about with Mike, um, it was not a performance where Notre Dame went out trying to score 45, even though that would, I think, be that's sort of what Notre Dame fans want to see after seeing a little bit more of conservative ball. But um, yeah, it's, I think it was an interesting conversation. Uh, a quick segue into major college football news bef- right before the game because God knows old guys in suits like nothing more than having us talk about them uh, instead of the college unpaid athletes that we get to watch on Saturdays. Uh, the college football playoff is expanding, and it's pretty much exactly what uh, Jack Swarbrick and Greg Sankey, what Craig Thompson and Bob Bowlesby, who is no longer a conference commissioner, <laughs> proposed about a year ago. So good on you, guys in suits. Yeah, I mean, I just look. I, I'm excited about a 12 team playoff. I think you're excited about a 12 team playoff. I think most of the world is. Certainly, the presidents are because they realized, hey, we're going to leave a half billion dollars on the table by not expanding to 12. Um, I just think it's it's the most college football thing ever for these guys to announce this on Friday, hours before. Well, games had already play, been played on Thursday, but you know, on literally opening weekend, as I'm in Midway Airport getting ready to board my flight, I'm like chasing calls about this, and it's just. Um, can we let the games be the games? Like, like, is our friend Pat Forty, whatever he is, Yahoo, SI, uh, likes to say, like, you know, this sport has been trying to screw itself up for hundreds of years and they haven't been able to do it because the games are so good and because the atmospheres and all the crazy stuff we love about it is so fun. And yet, last day of last season, January 10th, I think it was, Indianapolis, Georgia beats Alabama, but that whole day is commissioners meeting about a 12-team playoff and – not coming to consen- a consensus and blaming each other for what was going wrong. And that took up much of the oxygen on the day that saw Georgia end a 41-year title drought in dramatic fashion against Alabama. And what happens between then and now? There was one more meeting, I think, in February. And then back in, now in September, six months later, seven months later, the presidents essentially put the commissioners in their place and say, we don't trust you guys to play nicely together. We're just going to say we're going to 12 and it's up to you to figure out if we can get there 
in 24 or 25 before the deal expires in 20, the current deal expires in 26. I'm happy it's happening. Um, I think there, there's a sense of better late than never among those who were all about this from the beginning. But it is very crazy and frustrating that June of 2021 was when this 12-team proposal was put out there publicly. There was a lot of, you know, uh, volleying back and forth. And here we are in September of 2022, uh, 15 months later, where they finally decided to go with it. Um, and all that time and progress was wasted along the way. And uh, overshad- I wouldn't say it overshadowed, but, but it tried to overshadow. I was going to say travel expenses were wasted along the way. <laughs> well, we, we know these guys, when, when we're talking about unpaid uh, – Unpaid student athletes. You can't get enough of meetings in high end hotels in exotic locales. They're not. They're not meeting in, in random podog towns in the middle of nowhere. They're not staying at the courtyards like me and you are. No. Um, they, they are. Uh, they are living large. But better late than never. I think this is great for Notre Dame. Um, I think when we talk about playoffs in Notre Dame in a four team system, you got to go undefeated. And, and Brian Kelly and Notre Dame were able to do that twice and get to uh, that postseason tournament. Obviously, um, we've talked ad nauseum about the, the, the higher floor and lower ceiling that, that came with the Brian Kelly coach team. Um, the higher of Marcus Freeman, as Mike Golick get, gets into uh, in our interview with him, you know, essentially is an investment on turning this program into something bigger and better, um, competing at a higher level, both on the field and on the recruiting trail. Um, and maybe taking some lumps along the way. And I, I mentioned that last point because you've got to go undefeated to make the playoff if you're Notre Dame in a four-team system. In a 12-team system, you can win, lose one, maybe even two games. And if your roster is significantly better than it has been in recent years, all you need to do is get into that tournament to give yourself so much as a puncher's chance at winning a national title. Now, you've got to win more games. you got to play more games. But if this roster, if this past recruiting class or this current recruiting class is reflective of what's to come for Notre Dame and they can stack these classes, um, I think a 12-team playoff is one of the best things ever happened in Notre Dame football. It's like the access is a lot better, but you better recruit harder than you have before because now instead of having to beat two teams like Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, you have to beat Three teams like that. I mean, Notre Dame. Eh, could, Notre the, 12, Dame could, the 12 seeded team is not going to be. A, a, maybe if it's a three loss Bama in an off year. No, but that's what I'm saying. Tw- like Notre Dame's a five seed, so they beat the 12, which is like Pittsburgh, right? And then they get a Clemson, and they beat Clemson, and then they get Ohio State, and they beat Ohio State, and then they get yeah. Alabama or they get Georgia. So you, you have to that's be right. yeah, no buys, no buys. Yeah, you have to beat three of those teams to win a national title instead of just two, which was already very hard in the days of uh, Mike Golick's year of like, oh man, what if they get Kansas State in the national championship game? We're we're not going back to those days. Uh, those That's all long gone. So talent is going to win out. You need a dynamic head coach as a recruiter to get talent. Notre Dame has one of those. Um, so it's, it's a good time to have a head coach like Marcus Freeman if you're Notre Dame because that's the only way you're going to get to the mountaintop. Uh, recruiting already super important is even more important now because you can't there's no gaming the system based on your opponent anymore and like some fluky losses and schedules like you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do it the hard way um, and you can't do it the hard way unless you have talent um, spinning a forward in order against Marshall this weekend I think the game is not quite sold out but it's expected to um, I think we all expect this to be the opening win of the Marcus Freeman era and then move forward from there but it's I mean after last weekend as, as much as I felt like Marcus Freeman distinguished himself as a first-time head coach with the full staff, full prep, all that stuff, and looked good. Now comes the part that's like, I wouldn't say it's the hard part. It's just the part that people don't give you credit for. It's beating all the teams that you should. And Notre Dame should be on a run of about seven straight games uh, that Brian Kelly won over and over and over and over again. And now Marcus Freeman, we get to see if he can be as steady as that. Because, I don't know, like, my, def- my antennas definitely went up about like the motivation Notre Dame was getting out of the point spread and being an underdog and like, look, you you take motivation wherever you can get it, but when that motivation goes away and Notre Dame's not going to have it for a while again, um, how does Notre Dame sort of stay locked in, stay focused for teams like Marshall and Cal? The players talked a little bit about that this week about how the practices have been physical, not in a punitive way, but in a sort of 
identity formation kind of way. So I'm, you know, for it's Marshall Nurem's a twenty point favorite, but I'm still really, really interested to sort of see how Nurem behaves in that spot because for the first time in a long, long time, you don't have Brian Kelly there to sort of give you the answers before the test uh, with this kind of game. No, and. No one was better at that than than Brian Kelly was, at least until Sunday night. 40 straight wins as a favorite, 42 straight wins um, against unranked opponents to close his Notre Dame career. I, I'm, I, I get the questions. I think that's a question that's going to be persistent throughout the course of the year. I'm not sure if it applies to this particular game, irregardless of opponent. Um, it's very simple. Marcus Freeman, you're winless as a head coach. Tyler Buckner, you're winless as a starting quarterback. Guys, this is our first game at home. Like, I think the motivation kind of presents itself blankly. Um, but but I do think that's something that will come up when they play, you know, the North Carolinas of the world who have been completely sporadic through, through two games this year. Um, the BYUs of the world who, who are obviously very capable of beating a team like Notre Dame. Like, I, you know, getting up for the Ohio States, getting up for the Clemsons, the USC's, um, that, that's the easy part, so to speak, from a motivational and, and, and coaching standpoint. Um there are a lot of, you know, quote unquote trap games throughout the course of the season that Brian Kelly made quick work of throughout his time at Notre Dame. And he never overlooked an opponent, or at least in the last five years, they never overlooked an opponent. Um, very rarely played down to their competition. And that's the type of, you know, nuance that goes beyond the X's and O's and, and, and that you grow into, I think, as a head coach. But I, I'm not, I mean, the line's 20 and a half. I know it's big, but, um, I just think there there's enough right in front of these guys this week that they should go get after it and, and not need to um, worry about something down the line just yet. They need to take care of business. Yeah, and I think they will. And like I'm, I don't want to make sure this is clear. Like I'm not concerned about it. I'm just interested to sort of see how Marcus Freeman puts this puzzle together, um, which should be fairly easy to put together. But you know, it's the first time for everything, so I'm interested to sort of see how that shakes out. Uh, we'll be back, of course, Saturday post game. I'll be up in the press box by myself, Matt. I, you'll either be uh, coming off Northwestern Duke or at a block party in Chicago. But uh, we will have post game Notre Dame Marshall reaction. Probably won't be as like breathless as it was last weekend when we were, when we were in Columbus together. We have a petting zoo coming, so it's going to get pretty lit All on right. the Grace Oops. Point block party. I, I, I can't wait to hear about that on Saturday night. If uh, we have some filler, if the game is 42 to three, uh, we'll have something to talk about goats and pigs. We'll have and a thundering all. herd coming down our block. No, but I'll ball. Way to tie it in. I appreciate your pro. Well, we're going to head up to our interview with Mike Golick Jr. I think you'll find it pretty interesting and entertaining. Um, again, I wish I you could have seen his face when I suggested uh, a question in my mailbag about Tommy Reese getting more of a free pass because he played quarterback at Notre Dame because like he almost jumped through uh, the Zoom window and not strangled me, but just like I think his head might have exploded. So uh, <laughs> it was a it was a good interview. I think you'll enjoy it. So w- without further ado, here's Mike Golick Jr. on the Shamrock. Yeah, let's just get into it, Mike. Um, I'm going to wave my arms and say all of us, maybe. I don't know if I'm going to include Fortuna in the all of us, but I, certainly me and you. I think that we felt like all right. Harry, he stands back. Just pick up where you left off after 2017. Did we get out over our skis a little bit too much on that? Uh, I think in the sense that, and even for me, I, I forgot as someone who, you know, back in 2012 had my last year as Coach Eastan's first year, just remembering, one, how much the makeup of our line as far as having a bunch of older guys on it, certainly change things in that regard. But also just what Coach Eastand asks of you is very demanding. And the technique that he's asking these guys to do is something that Josh Lugg is familiar with because he was there long enough to kind of have the the you know that last taste of Coach Eastand and what he looks for. But all the rest of that is Really hard to do when you get into live action and everything gets stressed because we're all human. We default back to what we know, what's safest for us. And a lot of what Coach Eastan asks you to do, you know, firing your hands out there on guys, focusing on that big hard punch to stun guys in the pass game and firing off as fast as he wants you to in the run game are things that 
especially if you haven't done it a lot, take a ton of reps to get comfortable with. Like I wasn't comfortable throwing the kind of punch that Coach Eastan wanted until much later in the season because it's a risk. It's a lot easier to let guys get into your body. It's a lot easier to just count on the entirety of your, for lack of a better term, meat shield to go and do the job here as opposed to the things that he, you know, he wants technically. And these guys are all great, you know, great players who want to go out there and put the technique that they're taught on tape. But it takes a little while and it takes a lot of reps to get the work volume to a place where you're comfortable executing all of that against a team, especially like Ohio State, that does, in my mind, the hardest thing to account for as an offensive lineman is get off and gap penetration. Like, you got a team that wanted to live in the backfield and guys that were playing with their hair on fire under Jim Knowles. That's a really hard thing to go out and try and do this week one against. So, yeah, I, I'm with you in the fact that I probably looked and said, all right, these guys are, are you know, more talented than most of the guys that we had on our line my last year. Coach Eastand is the best offensive line coach in college football, and away we go. I, I, I was definitely a little guilty of that. I, I was too. You, you could throw me in okay. there. I, I will fall on the sword here. But, but Mike, last year, I mean, look, we all we talked ad nauseum about the O-line struggles last year. They averaged 1.66 yards before contact per carry last year, which was 97th in the nation. 1.08 against Ohio State. They were somehow even worse. I know Ohio State, as you said, has a lot to do with that. But but from what you saw, how much of that was Notre Dame's deficiencies versus Ohio State being very, very elite on the defensive line? And again, we haven't mentioned yet, even though everyone knows it, Jarrett Patterson, arguably your best player, was out. So that deserves a mention as well. But, but how much of that was Notre Dame versus Ohio State? Yeah, I think that's another good point, right, is these guys who were playing last year were used to JP in there at center, and now you've got Zeke sliding over to center because Harry wants to get the best five guys onto the field. So there was a lot of change involved in there, which as much as I'm sure they've worked together during training camp, again, live bullets, the communications all affected, not having Jared's voice out there. That's a huge part of it. And I just think this Ohio State defense is going to prove to be really good. Like a lot of the problems that Ohio State's had in the past – appear long gone the linebackers were fast as all hell here 44 was making life an absolute nightmare one of the other things that I, I think is interesting as it relates to how we perceive all of this because nothing with blocking or pass protection is ever just all the o-line I don't know where we're at as far as blocking tight end this year I I don't know and in years past having a Tommy Tremble when you want to go with these heavy formations because Michael Mayer is an incredible pass catcher, and he's a pretty good blocker right now as he works with Coach Eastan and as those guys, because I know they are, the tight ends always do. Mm-hmm. He's going to get better because he's a big, strong, great athlete, but I don't know if our tight end room is as ferocious and as impactful a part of what Notre Dame will do. And maybe, again, that's an Ohio State thing, and, and it'll be an outlier, but uh, I, I think a lot of it, goes to that unit there. And then the rest of it is, like I said, it's just the technique things they are going to take some time to take hold for this group that's also, you know, running a pretty varied offense, had a specific game plan in this game. Like, when you hear Coach Freeman talk about what Tommy Reese and the offense were out there trying to execute, it was, as we all know, to take the air out of the ball, limit Ohio State to under 12 possessions, do all these things that would slow that down, which... I'm sure Ohio State kind of knew that too, which now all of a sudden turns this into nine on seven and running nine on seven when pretty much everyone knows it's going to be a run more often than not does make sledding pretty tough. Yeah, I I was interested, like what concerned you most about the offensive line from Saturday? Was it was it communication? Was it turning guys loose? Was it uh, the physicality? Like because I. I'm, you know, I'm up in the box. I didn't play offensive line. If you look at me, you know that. Um, but like the the guys sort of running loose, and I, I guess I mean less about like you know bringing Liam Meikenberg's brother on a delayed blitz where he wraps around and maybe Zeke doesn't see it, and more like towards the end of the game where Hall just splits Fisher and Lug, where it's like you guys like he's right right there. What what was sort of like the big thing where like ooh that. That actually is, gives me pause a little bit about where things are. Yeah, I mean, and you know what? And, and, and it's not 
you know, I'm not doing the, you know, he stand apologist thing. I'm not <laughs> super, I'm not super worried about okay. where these guys are because all of those mistakes are infinitely correctable, right? Like mm-hmm. there were a couple instances of guys getting beat physically, but for the most part, that's not a huge concern with this group. Like even last year, it wasn't a lot of them getting beat physically, but it's five guys seeing the same thing through one set of eyes. And there were a few more guys turned loose than I expected. But when a defense is moving this fast and, like you said, Jim Knowles dialed up some good stuff. There yeah. were some really creative overload pressures that I, I was going back and watching some of these and just going, man, sometimes there's just a better call on the other side. Like sometimes there's not a lot that you can do about all that. And then the other stuff, you know, you mentioned some of the splits and things like that. That's the area where if you really want to look for what I think is a lot of the key stand difference as far as technique, to me, it's always easiest seen when passing off stunts. So if you go back and look when like Rob Hamsey and Liam and those guys were here, I, that was the part where it blacked in for me where I was like, man, this is what having Coach Eastand for six years does versus having him for one like I did because you looked away across the board. No defender is getting into the body of these guys. Everyone's hands are out and snapping these guys off and punching hard and passing off those games. And it just, it looks so different when it's done the way he coaches because it eliminates so many of the problems. Because again, not to get too, too deep in the weeds, but like when you let guys into your body, a lot of bad things can happen in pass protection here. And when a team wants to run twists and games and stunts up front where some guy's trying to penetrate that gap between the two of you to open the door for his buddy, if I let him into my chest, now all of a sudden we're both screwed. I just walked over and handed my buddy a live grenade and said, hey, figure it out. So as these guys are figuring that out, that's to me the number one area where Coach Eastan's technique shows up that I think is easiest to see on a broadcast is when you see them snap off twists and everyone's hands extended, punching those things off hard. And uh, going back to what I said at the beginning, that's just the part that takes time and reps to get comfortable with. And so now that those reps won't be against one of the best defenses that they'll face, I mean, out, outside of Clemson this year, that's the best defense more than likely Notre Dame's going mm-hmm. to face. And so they're going to have chances to go out here and gain confidence through reps against opponents that are going to be comparatively less stressful on the parts involved. Mike, all I notwithstanding, biggest takeaway from Saturday night, positive or negative. Uh, secondary, man, they were flying around. Like I get that 11 wasn't out there in full force for Ohio State, and so that made life a little easier. But I, I just think based on what Notre Dame's always been, which I think is fair to say a place that's at times not always had the speed in the secondary that's allowed them to go out there and do all the things they wanted, Tariq Bracey was flying around out there making plays, man. That dude popped off the tape, whether he was guarding guys in the slot or anywhere else. And I just think... What they were able to do, because the four-man pass rush wasn't getting home. Ohio State was winning that battle, and Notre Dame had to bring extra bodies on the plays where they wanted to get it. And again, Ohio State's got really talented dudes up there. Paris Johnson or whatever his name is, that's a that's a Sunday dude. Like he's Dewan Jones is one of the biggest people I've ever seen. He is terrifyingly large. So some of that makes sense, but what I saw of them holding up on the back end and giving that line a chance to still get pressure late in the clock on the down and things like that was really impressive and just a reminder that as Notre Dame has changed coordinators and we've gone from Clark Lee and, and Elko and everyone on through this time, the defensive consistency has been remarkable in this program. Like I think you had the biggest stock up in the room in the back end. The linebacker room's just super consistent. Like JD and Bo and all those guys play with their hair on fire and whatever they lack in athleticism, they make up for in effort and just impossibly good communication like this defensive unit knows exactly who it is and that's why a guy like Riley Mills comes out after the game and says he's so confident that this can be the best defense in college football so I I thought that unit which we knew was going to be a strength on this team but especially on the back end against you know the best group of skill players they will see before we play USC was a pretty incredible Mm -hmm. showing how how do you think Marcus came through the weekend. I mean, and I asked that sense of like, you played here, you know guys here. Yeah. You also have called a lot of games, so you know what good head coaching management looks like and what bad looks like. Yep. Um, I thought for a first, it's not his first game, but his first game with this staff. Um, I thought like in terms of the complimentary game plan, you know, were there some things that he wanted to get cleaned up? Yes, but overall I thought that 
it didn't it wasn't obvious obvious that this was a first time head coach um and i thought that was a a really big positive for notre dame moving forward yep you didn't see it you didn't see any like clear blunders or anything like that i thought he showed really well for himself and like you said i'm sure there was a ton of self scout that went on after the fiesta bowl and I'm sure some people are still going to look and say, well, look what happened in the fourth quarter. Ohio State adjusted. Notre Dame didn't like. Notre Dame was on the road with a first-time starter at quarterback, a depleted wide receiver room, and what they thought was a very specific game plan that was going to get them to victory. And as far as coaching goes, they executed that game plan across the board. Everyone involved played complimentary football to go out and try and give them the best opportunity based on the way they had scouted this, based on what Marcus Freeman knows about that program, and based on what they believed their personnel were capable of in this first game in this environment. So, yeah, I I think he walks out of this looking very well. I know, you know, a lot of people are doing the no moral victories thing and stuff like that, but... This isn't the normal Notre Dame big game stuff. That's the last game of the season when you're a fully formed team. This is week one when you went and played one of the toughest road environments in college football. And now you've got a chance to correct those mistakes. And now you've got a place for this to go with a football team that's, like we mentioned, young in a bunch of areas, especially at quarterback, that we're always going to make this something where we're really building towards their best ball when we once we hit November. Mike, in that same vein, I mean, Tyler Buckner's first career start, he'll never face a tougher environment yeah. than that. I mean, LeBron James is literally rooting against him on the opposing sideline to say nothing of 105,000 other people in the building. Not so much valued as performance, but where do you think he can build off this and how much, again, not to say moral victories, but I came out of there thinking like Notre Dame has to feel pretty good about the way this guy handled this environment and where they can go from here with him. Yeah, it never spiraled for him, right? Because a lot of times with young guys, that's what you're looking for is the moment where the quick stand starts to set in. Which, um, like, you you saw yourself, right, in 2012. Like, every oh, yeah. had a lot of ability, but early in that year, like, there was some bug-eyed stuff in September that eventually sort of worked through. There was, but you know what, and even with Everett, and I can't speak to this on the sideline for Tyler, but even with Everett, he never showed that to us. Okay. Like, we knew it was happening on the field, but you get a lot of confidence with a guy with that kind of demeanor when he would come over to the sideline. So I'll give Ev that credit, certainly. And then obviously, you know, we had Tommy in there as well, who's always going to be like this, even keel across the board. But no, for Tyler, the moment never looked too big. And that sounds... Like, I don't want that to sound condescending because he's a big-time D1 quarterback. He's a guy that was highly recruited and came here to do exactly what he's doing. But, you know, and he played ball last year in plenty of spots, so I'm sure that helped him. But it's still your first start. Like, I remember how I felt before my first start, even having moonlighted and some backup time and gotten in when some guys were injured and stuff like that. Like, it's just different in the way it all hits you. And I wasn't the quarterback of the bleeping team. So, no, he, you know, got, I think, got a couple of those good downfield completions, the one circus catch that are good confidence builders for a quarterback who we knew was coming into this season. Mm-hmm. He knew how to cook it low and slow, knew how to use the running ability. It was developing more as a downfield passer. And when you bank a couple of those reps just for your own confidence, I think that goes a long way in you know, what happens now week one to week two when that big jump usually happens. You know Reese really well. Matt and I have a decent relationship with him. I think that the fan base perspective on Reese like took a weird turn uh, after last weekend. I would definitely, I would like, all right, I would like to see him call a game with a quarterback not making his first start and an interior offensive line that like can pass off stunts, right? Like it's hard to call plays when you when what you were banking on the most, your offensive line isn't quite there. Um, so how did how did you think Reese fared on Saturday night? Because it's not I don't want to. People are probably like throwing their iPhone out the window here because like I'm not here to like absolve Tommy Reese. I'm not saying he had an amazing game plan. They scored ten points zero in the second half, but I do think there was some creative stuff in there. It was just hard to get to it when you're not sure how Buckner is how much time Buckner is going to have I'm glad we're recording this on Wednesday because <laughs> I promise if you'd have got me on Sunday I'd have said some stuff that pissed people off man because I I walked out of my game Saturday night and I tweeted it I don't need to see the film to know that the level of slander that I was seeing for Tommy Reese was ridiculous 
Like, come on, don't we know this guy by this point? That man ran three different offenses at certain points in last year in the body of the same game and had them all ready to go with an offensive line that was beat up constantly and young constantly. I mean, what more does he have to prove to y'all that this guy knows what he's doing, even in the body of this game? Because like you talked about, it was a very specific game plan. They knew they needed to take the air out of the ball. They weren't running it the way anyone involved wanted to, and they weren't always protecting on the deep shots that they wanted the way they wanted to. But you want, I mean, I had people tweeting at me, why is he always running there were plenty of pass attempts and shots on first down. There were plenty of attempts at drop back that ended up being thwarted by guys getting pressure on the quarterback and not allowing that to happen. They tried to formation these guys. They tried to go big and tighten them down. They tried to spread them out here. There were jet gadget handoffs. I mean, I went back and watched the game just to make sure I wasn't being gaslit. <laughs> there was plenty there. The one thing I know about Tommy Reese is He's going to have plenty in the bag as far as things that'll break it up to try and give you some advantage when things when you can't just walk up and blunt force object people. And eventually I firmly believe this offensive line and this front, you know, this front group is going to be able to walk up and blunt force object people as this season goes along. They've got the right makeup talent-wise and they've got the right DNA. But in the meantime, Tommy has a lot of experience in navigating what it's like when your offensive line has a bit of a cracked foundation because of injury the way we saw so much last year. And I thought plenty of that showed up in the game. It just missed in key spots. And then by the time you get to the fourth quarter where you're in a little more of a balancing act between, all right, we know we still have to try and keep that other offense off the field as much as we can because we saw them gaining power towards the end of the game and them gaining steam on the ground towards the end of the game. But listen, it it wasn't perfect, but I feel like the reasons are all pretty obvious for what we stated as to why it wasn't perfect. And so I just... I didn't understand everyone freaking out over the way that that went offensively. I was pretty baffled by that one, and it sounded like a lot of people that felt entitled to something in a way that confused me. They they covered I mean, you work for DraftKings. Uh, they covered the spread like they, they overperformed <laughs> well, by, I mean, by any like, rational measure. I, yeah, like this was this was a game Notre Dame on paper was not supposed to win. Ohio State's one of the three most talented teams in the country. That offense is going to be really good. Like Notre Dame's defense did a lot to stymie it. I think C.J. Stroud was also just off on some throws that were uncharacteristic for him during this game. But like, my God, we're gonna, we're going to do the sky is falling after that game. Really? That's the one where people are going to come for? Like, I, I, man, some of y'all go touch grass, find God, something. (laughs) It's unreal. But, you know, if anyone's used to taking unnecessary grief from Notre Dame fans, it's Tommy Reese. It's funny. I had a question in my mailbag today, and he's like, it was, do you think Reese gets more of a pass from fans because he played here? And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Only people can see Mike's face yeah. right now. He gets, I mean. he gets more shit from fans because he played here, not oh. the other way around. Um, I, yeah, I just everybody knows how easy it is to be a play caller from their couch. Um, it's it's incredible how easy it is to do. I think you know Chip Long was very talented. Uh, People liked him in the beginning and hate him in the end. Uh, it just that's just how it's how it goes for offensive coordinators. And it, Reese is yeah. living that right now. I, I know Tommy understands that as well as anyone. I know Tommy's well compensated, but man, like, don't wait till he's gone to start appreciating Tommy Reese <laughs> uh-huh. here, man. Like, please, God, we've. I, I can tell you, I go and call. Like you said, I go and get to call a lot of college football games. I get to see a lot of different con- conferences, a lot of different offenses, and stuff like that there aren't a lot of people who call games quite as well offensively and give you as much variety and creative creativity and do as much to put guys in position to succeed as the guy that you've got in South Bend right now. So maybe, I don't know. I like, I understand the result isn't what he wanted either, but I, I just, I felt like at this point, there was enough of a foundation coming in to where people understood what this guy was about. Clearly, I'm wrong. And like J.J. Watt said, <laughs> success isn't owned. It's rented and rents due every day. It's like it's like you just found out about Notre Dame, Mike. Like, d- d- uh, I, <laughs> man, maybe I've been off Twitter more than you guys. I haven't like felt as much vitriol toward him, but I know it's there because that's kind of the punching bag for the fan base. Whenever things go wrong, whether it was him as a player 
or as a coach. I mean, I remember the 2013 USC game. I think you were already graduated at that point, Mike, yeah. when he goes down with a concussion. Andrew Hendricks, who everyone was clamoring for, comes in, and they get 30 yards of offense over the last 30 minutes, and they hang on for dear life to win 14-10. Against Ed Odron, by the way. Um, so that was uh, something. And then, look, you were at the spring game, and I, I was going to ask you about that, but there were fans wearing T-shirts saying, Freeman Reese 22, we're not bleeping leaving. Like, <laughs> people were really fired right. up when he came back, and that honeymoon <laughs> lasted all of one game. <laughs> we did the we did the thing. We did the whole thing. He was the guy. Like and you're right. You know what? Like there's part of it like I hope I'm not strawmanning this too much and taking a couple of my mentions like Pete, you can you can pull me back if I've been a little overloaded on this. Like it doesn't it doesn't take much to pull me off on that and I don't know how much of the fan base this is representative of, so I should probably Make sure I remind too myself much. that the, the answer is, is it, it's too much of the fan base. Okay, perfect. Then I apologize for yeah. absolutely nothing. It's not the majority, but like more people feel this way than is healthy or rational or logical. Then again, I will tell them, go touch grass. Yeah. <laughs> but by the way, their last two play callers, I don't know if you watched them. They played Monday night and Sunday night, and neither of them won, and both of them lost in embarrassing fashion. Correct. Like, I don't need... You, you know what? Uh, usually comparison's the thief of joy. I thought comparison here would be the absolute thing that brought them joy. But <laughs> you know what? If some people don't want to be happy, they're not going to be happy. So, so I mean, and overall, like, I, I was interested, like, the, the program has a lot changed, in your opinion, over Marcus Freeman, two games in, 0-2, both top 10 teams. Both games had some kind of funky dynamics to them. Like, do you feel much differently about Marcus and where the program's going after two games than you did, you know, maybe just after last weekend than you did when he got hired? No, because I think, like, part of Marcus coming over here was an investment in what we believe could happen on the top end, knowing that along the way there would be growing pains for a first-time head coach. Like, in a very different level, this is what the 49ers are getting ready to do with Trey Lance, right? They believe they've got a freak show talent that can take them over the spot that they've been hung up at, which has been a really good spot. And for Notre Dame, it's much the same. You've been a college football playoff team. You've had five double-digit win seasons. Now your hope is you've got this guy who is an absolute gift on the recruiting trail, who's young and believes that he can provide the inertia necessary to push past that talent breaking point that's kept Notre Dame from being in that Ohio State Georgia. Georgia, Alabama group up at the top of college football and to do that along the way to invest in a guy that you think has all of that ability and skills you are going to have to understand that there's just some stuff he's going to have to learn in real time as a first-time head coach that anyone would be learning in that position he's just doing it in one of the most high-profile jobs in the country so I- I've been screaming from the mountaintop since he took over like Man, if for some reason things went as bad as they possibly could this year and we won like eight games, because I, I believe that with this team's core, you're not going to lose more than, you know, you're not going to lose more than four games. This is at minimum an eight win team in my mind, just based on the guys that you brought back and the defense that we saw out there. But if that happens, like the sky's not falling. Like it's an, it's an investment in the future of this program to go in and get all of that experience to do it against a schedule. That's one of the tougher ones in the country. So no, I, I don't feel any differently. I still think that he has demonstrated in every part of this job along the way, heading into football season, that he is capable of handling a Notre Dame job that requires a lot of you often away from the field in a ton of different ways. And is still delivered. Mike, Going back to the spring game, you know, Marcus Freeman and Hunter Biven, you know, drew a lot of praise from, from you guys for inviting, I think, 300 or so of you back. Had a whole kind of Letterman's weekend. First time that had been done in maybe forever, but definitely in recent memory. You you had some pretty poignant tweets about how much that meant, not just for, like, yeah. the brand, but but for guys who had played there and lost touch with each other and, you know, some negative headlines, some positive headlines and so forth. Just as a former player – can you take us through that weekend and, and what that meant for you? Yeah, it was it was really cool, man. And like the the poignant part for me was just you know, I, like and you guys have, have known and seen and covered it. Like the the four years I was there, we've lost a lot of guys already. Like yeah. 
just just recently, I mean, Paul Duncan drops dead out of nowhere going on a run with his daughter. And we have that news circulating around. And before that, it was, you know, Taylor Dever and Lewis Nix and so many guys that I could keep going on with. And you realize that even for us, you know, I went back for my 10-year reunion not long after the spring game. 10 years is long enough for a lot of life to happen. And everyone goes their separate ways and you don't always have these natural spots to check in on everyone, even if it's just for a minute, even if it wasn't a guy that you were best friends with or super close with, like we all spent so much time with each other and to see an opportunity for that to happen in a place that everyone was familiar with, to see guys from classes in the sixties and seventies and eighties able to come back and see how they interacted with their friends, the way that I interact with my friends and teammates to have that on display in front of the current team and to let those guys just make those connections and feel like they're still a part of something. I think for every player, when you get done, whatever level of sports you get done with, you kind of lose that sense of belonging because for so long you've walked into every station of life with a natural friend group and a natural community of people who are like you, who are interested and here for the same things as you and will just be there for you because you guys all put in so much time under task together. And so... Getting people back in that environment, I think, is super healthy for the guys as former players. I think it does a lot for the current players to see, man, this is how close I can still be with my teammates years down the road. Hearing some of the stories about how guys in prior classes have been able to help one another get a leg up in their life after football and get an advanced start on whatever their next job or anything is going to be, I think is something that I, you know, I'm super happy that that's happening for players now because that wasn't the case when we were there. You didn't have as many instances of former players getting to come back and have these kind of networking events. And so just reminding everybody that this is still home for you, I I think is a pretty powerful message. And uh, it, you know, like I said, that's why whatever happens football wise, like. I understand that had gains for Notre Dame football too, right? You do that in a re- weekend that's big for recruiting. You get all these guys mm-hmm. back. I, I I understand how the game works, but at the core of that, both sides seem to be able to benefit in real ways, and it seemed like a genuine desire to want to let guys know that, hey, like this place still belongs to you even if you're not here taking class day to day, and that was pretty special. That sort of, I want to double back on like the question about Marcus and running the program because I feel like one of the things that's really struck me about him is like how much he seems to get Notre Dame despite only having yeah. been here for what like twenty months now. Um, yeah. You know whether that be the Blue Gold Weekend or you know when I, when I went out to alumni events and he would talk about moving Matt to the Basilica on Saturdays like that got a standing ovation. Um, what? Like, how much does that stuff matter as an alum, for as a fan? Um, you know, it's, it's like you're a Notre Dame family. Like, why does that stuff matter? How much do you think that matters for like the the connection that I think Marcus has already sort of built with the fan base, even though he's he's still fairly new here. Yeah, and like, listen. First and foremost, we all know it's ultimately going to come down to wins and losses, right. right? Like, we 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 all we're all realists and we acknowledge that. But at the same time. It's it's the same reason why when I get to ready to go call a college game, I try and familiar like make myself familiar enough with some of the stuff that's special to each school and some of the stuff from the surrounding area and local restaurants and stuff that's been you know when you try and do a deep enough dive on the team so you can walk in and show these fan bases. I care enough about what you've got going on to try and learn and acknowledge your stuff. And for Marcus to come in as a guy who we know was an Ohio State grad, did not come from around here, he walked in right away and he started calling people. He started calling alumni. He started calling old coaches. He started listening and taking notes. Like everyone you hear talk about their interaction with Marcus, he's taking notes. He's trying to learn and acknowledging that he doesn't know everything. And it's just one of those things. I think people all like to, like just general human philosophy, like people like to feel valued and heard. And so Marcus does a really good job of making people feel valued and making them feel like their opinions matter. And I think that's why you saw a defense that responded to him as well as they did as early as they did in his tenure as the D coordinator and why you got that scene there because there is someone who came in and listened. Like even going back to Brian Kelly, remember after the four and eight season when we heard all about, you know, he met with the players on the team. He made big changes there. When you feel like you've got some agency in the process and you feel like, hey, 
if I offer something up, it's going to be heard. It may not always be used. It may not be thrown right into it, but those things all add up. And so I think certainly for a fan base that feel like, all right, he's making the effort. He's coming to see us. He's meeting us where we are. For the alumni and donors, he's coming out here. He's shaking our hands. He's making us feel the love. Former players, it's all the same thing. Like, it requires a ton of effort. It's why every time I've seen Marcus, I'm like, how are you standing right now? Because you're constantly doing something for someone while also raising a family with six awesome kids. And so I I think it's just that effort. People can see the effort and people can see what he's put on display in the name of trying to show Notre Dame fans. I care enough about your thing to learn and value all of this stuff. Uh, you sat down with him, I think his office for a podcast hit in the spring. Um, that thing is taken off. First is a dumb question. What's Gojo? What what is that that just, how, how did that name come to be? So uh my friends over at the Dan Levitard show who were formerly at ESPN when I was there and are now part of uh Metal Arc Media, which is you know partnered up with DraftKings and, and does a great job there. I went down to do a show with those guys in Miami once, very early on in my tenure at ESPN. And their uh, executive producer uh, was a guy named is a guy named Mike Ryan, and we had too many mics in the room. There was another, I think there was another mic down there for some reason, and so they just looked at me and they're like, "Huh, Golik Junior, like Gojo, like we just they needed something to differentiate me in the room." And one of them spit that out because you know it's basically just like workshopping stand up down there at any given point. It's all improv comedy on the Levitard show, and for whatever reason, it stuck. Like I've never had a nickname in my entire life, and that one stuck. And now so many people, especially the people I knew at ESPN, have called me that. So I was like, why not just uh, run with it? <laughs> all right. The second I, part. I was just gonna say, second part of that is how fun is that show, Ben? Since, since it's taken off. <laughs> It's been great, man. Like, you know, getting to getting to do something new and we talked about the the the, the teammate factor of things. Going into a completely new arena, because I had never done podcasting before. I obviously hadn't left the safe confines of ESPN before. And getting to do this all with, you know, a former teammate and a guy in Brandon Newman that I've known since I was 17 years old really eases a lot of the uh, you know, anxiety that would be there if I was trying to do this and also learning someone else's tendencies and trying to figure out how I best communicate with them. All of that base level stuff with me and Brandon is rock solid. And so now it's just an opportunity to talk on a different platform with a lot of people that we've gotten to know throughout the years in sports media that are still playing right now. And it's been cool, man. And it allows me to live in Southern California instead of Central Connecticut, which is definitely an added (laughs) bonus in all of this, I will say. Current heat wave aside. I Cannot let you get out of here before uh, revisiting your Vegas video for the Shamrock series, which got my vote for best acting performance in there, which I, I, I saw think, that. I think it definitely, I mean, it was an overwhelming majority. I think you carried among uh, media votes there. Uh, take me through your acting process. How do you get in the right mental space? Um, how do you, how do you make the clucking noise as, as <laughs> expertly as you did? Like t- take me through that entire moment. You know what, guys? It's like everything else in my life. I have never been the most talented in anything I walked into. (laughs) But damn it, I'm going to watch a lot of film. And damn it, I'm going to practice and get the reps in beforehand. And this film watching goes all the way back. I mean, The Hangover came out when I was in college. And you guys know, (laughs) offensive linemen, we're fat and we smell bad. So what do we have to do to counteract that? We have to be really witty and quote a lot of movies and make people laugh. And so you just trade in that currency in O-line rooms. And with this movie in particular, because it was so popular, I had a lot of time under task already. I spent a lot of time in my hotel room out in Vegas, one, counting chips because I left there in the green at the blackjack table, which was awesome. But two, just re-watching that scene and trying to drink in all the finer notes because it's like anything else. It's the little parts that are going to make it. And so I thought, what's funnier than a fat guy falling down, which was done by you know Michael Mayer, who is decidedly not fat but is very big and fell down. What's funnier than a fat guy falling down is a fat guy making a really high-pitched squeal. So I, my biggest disappointment with that, though, I spent, no lie, like two and a half hours in the big mall on the Las Vegas Strip 
trying to find the cream uh, bomber jacket and turtleneck that Leslie Chow wore in that scene <laughs> and trying to find two of them because me and dad were both playing Mr. Chow. And so I was trying like hell because I thought the only thing that would have taken this from good to great was if you had us sweating our you-know-what's off out in a Vegas desert wearing bomber jackets and cream-colored turtlenecks underneath. So fell short of that, had to make up for it in effort and enthusiasm. How, how many takes did that take? Uh, we did a bunch that day. The funniest part about the amount of takes that we did was we had the guys that were the drivers that got us all out there that just you know drove the big black SUVs that found their way into the video. Like one of them holds the helmet out outside of the thing. Like those were not paid actors. They were the guys that were out there <laughs> driving the car. And so when me and dad did the part where we got back into the car after our exchange with Marcus, Isaiah and Michael. And we peeled off out into the desert. We had to shoot that like five or six times. And I remember the look in our driver's eyes the first time where we told him, we're like, yeah, just turn it right and gun it. And all of a sudden, the first take, he's driving like what feels like a half mile. And we had to reach over and be like, dude, you you can go back now. He was feeling the power of being able to just burn it out in the desert. And he was loving it. How do we end end topping that? I think I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, unless you want to have some commentary on what it was like to watch Florida State LSU on uh, Sunday night, because I think the Notre Dame fan base it was had some. They were up in their feelings on that. Yeah. No. I I have to imagine that if you were able to do a cross section of viewers and figure out like regions, I'm sure South Bend and the Midwest in general would have lit up like a Christmas tree. Especially in that fourth quarter, it was that was wild stuff, man. Like it's equal parts Florida State, super impressive, and also like Brian went from being in a place where offensive line was such an overwhelming strength for so long to now, you know, I mean, this roster had thirty nine scholarship guys or something like that for the bowl game this year. Yeah. There was, I think, a lot more under the hood that was going to need to get fixed. But um, try to trot it out another uh, halftime or post game interview joke that I don't think was going to go overly well with everybody here. So Sunday night standalones, man, they're not, they're not good for the ticker. Nebraska in week zero LSU on Sunday night. Like you don't want to play in those games because everyone is watching it and every little mistake you do turns into a national punchline. It's so true, man. If they played this game at three 30 in the, in like a Saturday afternoon window, We'd have noticed, and because it's Brian Kelly and because it's LSU, it still would have been a topic of conversation, but we got a chance to pour over every single detail of this with a fine-tooth comb, as did every member of the media. I mean, my friends that are LSU fans, like I was watching the timeline of Marcus Spears and some of those guys, pressed. They are pressed down there right now, so... I, I you know I, I still think they're going to figure it out eventually, but the O line thing is very real, and I think they're going to have to continue to figure out how the hell they morph this offense around that in the meantime. Well, the I, whole thing was just a reminder about what a great, fun, drunk sport college football is, and yes, why we love it so much as we do. But I, I would I would add to that. I think Coach O probably inadvertently threw kerosene on that fire with his comments yesterday. At the Arkansas Touchdown Club, I don't know if you guys saw what he said. <laughs> you're telling me I, I'm get, you're making a coaching change, and I'm get, owed seventeen million dollars. Where where do I sign, and which door do you want me to go out through? <laughs> I tell you, man, the Arkansas Touchdown Club is like Oprah Winfrey's couch oh, yeah. of fired college football coaches. Yeah. I have a uh, I had a very animated conversation with your original head coach about that due to comments he made um, in 2015 down there. Mm. <laughs> that, that, that's, that all sounds about right. I literally had to mute the phone because I couldn't stop laughing because he just was cursing for 10 minutes straight. Oh, man. Yeah. That's, and I had no relationship with him whatsoever. I was calling him about something else, and he just decided to go on a tangent. Hey, you know what? Every once, every once in a while, everyone just needs an ear to listen, and you were the closest <laughs> ear that day, so lucky you. <laughs> all lucky right. Me. Well, Mike, appreciate you uh, carving some time out for us uh, on the Shamrock to go through all things uh, Harry Heastand, Notre Dame, Marcus Freeman, and and acting. You're you're a you're a Triple professional thrust. thespian, a professional thespian now. So strong, yeah, strong man, work guys, in the desert. It's like that old Greg Oden uh, ESPN the magazine commercial. You uh-huh. want dynamic? I'm a chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Appreciate Thanks, you. Guys. All right. Take care.